The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the news from across Ukraine, looking at the situation in the East. We'll also talk about the Russian attacks on grain silos and ask what, realistically, the world can do. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 7th of June, day 104. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Francis Durnley, assistant comment editor. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. It's been another hard grinding 24 hours in the uh, Donbass region of Ukraine. The latest UK MOD, Ministry of Defence, Defence Intelligence estimate says that the axis from Papagna, that, that bulge south of the city of Severodonetsk, has stalled, as their word, stalled. Um, nothing nothing happening there. Russia has not been able to progress in well, a couple of weeks now from there. Um, however, they said there's more shelling around uh, Izium, which is further north, uh, out, out of that pocket, Izium, the, the sort of gateway to the Donbass. Um, and it suggests, this is the Defence Intelligence Assessment, suggests that that could well be a location for a new push uh, on the northern access, as, as Russia seemed to be having no no luck on that central access around Severodonetsk and uh, Popajna and uh, Liman. The fight, they're still fighting in Severodonetsk City, disputed claims of who is where, the uh, Russian and uh, Ukrainian counterattacks, but it's quite obvious there's, there's a lot of hard fighting going on in the, uh, in the city, uh, uh, but, but no real shift either way in the, um, uh, in the lines there. Other than that, there's been uh, missile strikes around the country from, from Russia, including on, on grain factories, uh, as you mentioned uh, at the start. Uh, and in yesterday's United Nations Security Council meeting, the Russian ambassador was, was uh, well, kind of taken to task, really, by the European Council President Charles Michel, uh, who, who blamed Russia for causing the global food crisis by targeting these centres and, and not allowing grain out. And uh, Mr. Michel said that um, that Russia was using food supplies as a, as a quote, stealth missile against developing countries, driving up food prices, pushing people into poverty, destabilizing entire regions. And he specifically called them out on targeting grain stores, stealing grain from areas Russia has occupied and said this act is cowardly and it's it's all it's propaganda. Um, at this point, Vasily Nabenja, the the uh, Russia's uh, ambassador to the uh, to the UN stormed out, claiming that these are all these are all lies. And as Mr. Nabenja was was heading out, Mr. Uh, Mr. Michel sort of was calling out to him, saying, "You may leave the room. Maybe it's easier easier not to listen to the truth." So, got a bit heated yesterday in the UN Security Council, uh, making the point there that Russia is. Uh, we've heard this expression before: weaponizing the grain, weaponizing the humanitarian um, aspects of it, uh, and just trying to. There's, there's finally this sort of consensus or this this push back against the Russian narrative that it's um, um, that it's the West causing all these these grain shortages areas such as many across across Africa and the poorer parts of the world who are utterly dependent on this grain you know they don't for quite obvious reasons they've got other 
other more more pressing uh, priorities. So they're not following the, the niceties of the war in Ukraine as much as we are. And hence, you know, it's easy for them to sort of uh, be, be uh, taken along with this propaganda. So, so finally, there is pushback at the very top in the UN Security Council just, just to push back on this narrative and say that this is not uh, or, or point to the root causes of it and say that this is just this is just not on targeting these silos and and, uh, and using grain supplies as, as a weapon. I think it's very interesting what Dom was saying there and, and, and significant in the sense that we've seen and commented on this podcast before the shifting nature of this war from in the manner in which it's being fought by the Russians. We started initially by commenting on the sort of almost blitzkrieg style strategy adopted by Putin, hoping to take Kiev in the first three days of the invasion and, and expecting a, a, a rapid um, uh, implosion of, of Ukraine's ability to resist. We obviously that was not successful, but but nonetheless, Putin continued to fight a war on numerous fronts in Ukraine and effectively tries to seize what appears to have been the majority of the country. That is now shifted as a consequence of um, the military defeats suffered by the Russian forces. And as a consequence, we've seen the war evolve into far more of an attritional one. That favours the Russians for two reasons. Firstly, because they could not sustain the continued losses of munitions and forces that they were in the early phases of the war. But second, and I think this is particularly um, important to what Don was just saying, um, a nutritional war now favours the long-term strategy adopted by the Russians because they think that they can perceive Western resolve weakening. Um, And as the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, the food crisis, the grain crisis that is in part precipitated by this conflict, um, puts increasing pressure, domestic pressure on European leaders. The expectation from Putin is that uh, that, that, that some sort of ceasefire that will allow him to continue to hold certain parts of Ukraine will be actively encouraged um, in the sort of dark corridors of, of, of international negotiations and will ultimately uh, lead to, to a, 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 the, the war ending sooner and in a favourable manner to the Russians. And, and so I think it's, it's right to see food now as one of the many fronts that, is, that this war is now being fought on. And as a consequence of that, I don't expect the, the food crisis to be, to be solved anytime soon. It has effectively been, as Don was saying, weaponized by Vladimir Putin. It is now one of the strongest, I suppose, cards he has to play in this conflict, if I can articulate it as that, um, because of this, uh, the, the impact that it will have on the international community in perhaps trying to encourage the Ukrainians to sit down and make some sort of um, concessions and to end the conflict. Um, if I could just wait, make one more comment on, on the point of food. Um, a listener may, uh, forwarded something to me that's buried on an MP's website, but I thought was a very in, in deep insight into what's going on in NATO on the food issue that I've not read or seen anywhere else. Um, it's by um, Right Honourable Alex Shelbrook, MP. He's leader of the UK delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And... Um, he comments essentially on the scale of the crisis, the grain crisis, and how um, around 1.5 million tonnes of this ca- could be moved by train if a continuous operation was in place. And essentially then talks about the, the, the conversations that are taking place within NATO in an attempt to, to facilitate this or um, uh, weakening Russia's naval blockade in an attempt to get this grain out. And, and I quote here, 
In the NATO Assembly, my conversations are now focusing on the possible need to put together a joint expeditionary force of naval vessels, potentially made up from the Royal Navy, allies and non-NATO allies, to escort the grain out of Ukraine. This would be a dangerous task and we must be prepared that we may need to engage in lethal defensive force against the Russian naval sea blockade. This would certainly run the risk of escalating the war in Europe and a high risk of death to British personnel serving in any joint expeditionary force. If we do not properly consider such a mission, then I believe we risk hyperinflation on food prices at home and starvation in the third world, which will undoubtedly lead to yet further influxes of refugees into Europe. And he goes on and talks further about the consequences. I mean, that is a remarkable, I think, statement to to, to put out. Um, Obviously, it's important there, I think, to flag that he talks about this being defensive that if there was a military um, in, or a naval engagement with the Russians so, so the Russians in a sense would have to would have to start it but I just think you can measure from the tone of that the seriousness in which NATO and its allies are taking this um, so I'd be fascinated to hear to hear Dom's take on that uh, yeah that's that's really interesting I think I mean it's good to have these ideas out there so we can throw them around and I'm not suggesting it doesn't have merit but let's think about this so if there is this joint maritime force of uh, let's say um, non uh, non Black Sea NATO states, um, let, let's say Brits. So the the, uh, the paper you just read from there talked about about Royal Navy personnel and what have you. So let let's say this is all done very defensively, and these ships were there very overtly with mine hunters to clear any way in, and and all the rest of it. That's fine. Um, you got a Russian jet coming towards your Type Forty Five destroyer because you'll need type 45s in there to provide air defense if you've got other ships going in mine hunters etc etc you need to have some protection from the air so you'll have a type 45 you've got a russian jet coming towards that very very expensive um and very capable asset it's on an attack profile you don't know if it's going to do anything do you take the risk Do do you shoot it down do you let it come in so you say or this paper suggests that it would be defensive and Russia would fire the first shot. Well, that's not how militaries work. I mean, if you, if you think you're under attack or you think there's a very credible risk um, from from a threat, you you act to, to, to remove that threat. So I think it's far too optimistic to say this would be purely defensive in nature and there'd be no no need for, for those NATO elements to, to come into contact, you know, kinetic shoot, shooting contact with uh, with the Russians unless the Russians fired first. It just wouldn't it just wouldn't happen like that. You just could not take the risk. So I think it's a little bit fanciful to to, to think like that. And then suddenly you're into uh, you know literally a, a shooting war. And this idea that there'll be there'll undoubtedly be a, f- a few British casualties. I mean these are fairly they're skirting over some pretty major issues um, in, in quite a light manner. I, w- I would suggest so. So I'm all for these ideas being out there, but I think I think a lot needs to be unpacked in there. <laughs> Horrible language, sorry about that. But you know, we need to throw these ideas around a lot and look at the consequences of these of these actions. I mean, pe- people talk about not taking action is is appeasement against Russia and it's weak and whatever. But it's it's not it's not appeasement. It's it's just. In many respects, it's just thinking about the consequences because you can't undo a lot of this once it's started. Um, you know, and putting in a NATO maritime uh, operation, uh, and then uh, you know you can't be a little bit pregnant, right? You're there or you're not, and you're and you're, you're taking action, military action, albeit the shooting hasn't started, and it could all very very easily unravel if you haven't if you haven't made you know, great accommodation here. So so I'm 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 pretty lukewarm on that suggestion. I actually um, I had breakfast this morning with a very senior uh, defence source, um, 
And defence also was suggesting that uh, he, he implied that kind of model was, was not off the table. But, you know, I mean, we're talking a table the length of which even Vladimir Putin would be impressed with. It's, it's on that end of the table, OK? So it's not off the table, but it's no, not, not being considered yet. But what the defence source was suggesting was that the, the Black Sea nations, probably led by Turkey, because they, under the Montreux Convention, they, they, in times of crisis, in times of war, they own the, the access to the, uh, through the Bosphorus and into the Black Sea, probably led by Turkey, possibly with Bulgaria, Bulgaria Romania, maybe some external countries such as Egypt, who have great knowledge of how to, how to keep the Suez Canal open. Um, so you know, there are other forces that you could, you could invite, first of all, or that might, on a on a bilateral, trinational basis, um, put something together before we start pulling out the big NATO card. Because, as I say, once you pull that card out, it's very difficult to, to kind of row back from that, no pun intended. Um, so something needs to happen. Um, rail and and road to get the grain out is is, is an option, but is incredibly small. I mean, talk, the volumes we're talking about, it just you know, maritime is, is the way to do it. I mean, you're taking months, if not years, off any kind of road and rail operation um so yeah something needs to happen there but but all of this at the moment all comes down to uh we can put these packages together and a deal will need to be done with russia to allow access okay and guess what they're going to ask for in return for that deal access to european seaports or reduction in sanctions it's something else okay the russians they know exactly what they're doing here they're not they're not they haven't done this as a this is not not an unforeseen consequence of their action in in ukraine so i think at the moment it's somewhat stalled. Um, the maritime industry, from what I can tell, are are reluctant or looking for, for someone else to take the lead in terms of the military because as soon as you put a, a military escort with ships, the insurance, as I'm told, goes through the roof. So yeah, they're unlikely to, to, to request that as a sort of – as a first measure. So I think we are um, – we're still feeling our way into this. I think it's, it's good that the debate has, has now – moved on to apportioning blame where it is correctly where it correctly lays um as for solutions i think i still think it's very very early days and we're we're a long way away from talking about um maritime coalitions of the willing and so on i think it's 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 quite possible that the um that that mr shelbrook is is Mate has you know he has released this statement on his website as I say so it's quite possible that he's also posturing by by NATO to be just be showing Russia you know the strength of their resolve and and that it's you know that kind of brinkering ship brokermanship brinkering ship um, um, on the international stage uh, as well but I think fundamentally it, it just shows doesn't it that that long term solving the grain issue will depend on who it favours more for it to be solved in the context of this war the West or or Russia. Right now, there's a case, I think, that it benefits Russia for it not to be resolved um, because of this, its position as a, as a sort of bargaining chip in, 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 on, on the international stage. And so I think for that reason, it's, it's something, as I say, that we, we should consider as being a, a front in this, in this war. Um, Francis, can I turn to you? Yesterday, we spoke to Camilla Turner, our chief political correspondent, who was talking to us from the House of Commons ahead of Boris Johnson's confidence vote. Listeners will probably be aware that the British Prime Minister won that vote. What happened? What impact does this have for um, the Ukraine war? And how did the Ukrainians respond? Uh, yes, he did win, although I think um, uh, it stretches the definition of the word, if I could put it that way. He's in a very, very difficult situation. Um, I think, you know, it's quite possible to say that he's he struck the iceberg and it's just a, a question of times to, as to, to when he sinks, unless there is some uh, radical 
change on, on the international scene, um, either in Ukraine or, or elsewhere, that, that essentially resets our politics. Of course, that happened before when the Ukraine war started. Um, and so, you know, you never know it could it could happen again. But yes, it's been very interesting seeing the Ukrainian response to this. Um, so, yes, he essentially... Um, in his nightly address yesterday, President Zelensky said that he was grateful to Boris Johnson for teaming up with the United States to supply multi-launch rocket systems um, that are able to strike up to about 50 miles away, I believe. Um, and since then, he's actually made even more favourable remarks um, uh, this morning, I believe, where he said, um, and I quote, I'm very happy about it. This being, of course, um, Boris Johnson surviving the confidence vote. I'm happy that I think Boris Johnson is a true friend of Ukraine. I regard him as our ally. Great Britain is our great ally. Boris is supporting us. Boris is very concrete in supporting Ukraine. I'm glad we have not lost a very important ally. This is great news. So, I mean, I think he, he says it all there in terms of how he uh, views Boris Johnson. Of course, Boris... Um, uh, the, uh, Boris Johnson did visit Kiev um, um, immediately um, as when it was safe to to do so. And so it's not surprising that, uh, and given the nature of British support, that he perhaps feels this way. Um, and he was given um, opportunities to remark about other European leaders as well, particularly Emmanuel Macron, but did not uh, make similar remarks there. So, yes, I think a revealing insight into um, the, the Ukra- Ukrainian reaction uh, at the very top to to uh, to. Boris Johnson surviving the confidence vote and not being forced to uh, to resign as prime minister. Although, if actually, if I could just say, I think given the the, the scale of the um, success of the Ukrainian enterprise as perceived within the Conservative Party, say if Boris Johnson had um, lost and been forced to resign, I don't see any leadership contender would have radically changed or would radically change the British response to the conflict. Um, I think it's been seen as a, as a, as a rare win, um, if we, one can articulate it in that way. And as a consequence, I think that any leader would, would likely um, continue his policy very strongly. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, Dom Nichols, can I turn to you? You've got a note here that says Germany is sending vehicles to Greece in, in order to facilitate more military supplies to Ukraine. Can you talk us through this? What's going on? This is the latest in the weapon supplies, uh, trying to get weapons into uh, into Ukraine. So uh, remember the MARDA IFVs, the infantry fighting vehicle, uh, a little bit dated, but still very capable uh, capable vehicle. Uh, Germany's got a, uh, they are upgrading uh, MARDA, so they've got a, a lot still in, in war stock, kind of ready ready to go or, you know, all greased up, but um, in short order, able to, uh, able to, to, to go. And they are apparently sending 100 MARDA to Greece, uh, to allow Greece then to send uh, BMP-1, BMP being a, a Boyavaya Machina Picotti, I seem to remember, uh, BMP-1, very, quite an old, well, very old, a very old infantry fighting vehicle. Um, I think it's got a, has it got a 30 mil cannon on the top? Or is that BMP-2? Anyway, it's, it's an old bit of kit. Um, BMP-1 into Ukraine. So, you know, at the start of this, or on one end you could say, yep, every little helps, that's good. I mean, we've seen Russia have to rely on BMP or have to use BMP one in Ukraine, and they're just they're they're either not getting to the battlefield because they're breaking down on the way, or just getting knocked out straight away because they are, albeit up armoured and, and what have you, they are, they are extremely vulnerable because they're so old. So Greece supplying BMP one to Ukraine, uh, yeah, good, thanks, but it's not, you know, what's the what's the what's the what's in the other hand, um, and the fact that this is some sort of 
convoluted Germany sending Marder to Greece, so they send the MP. It's like, can you just send the Marders, please? I mean, they are pretty good vehicle. Like I say, a little bit old, but you know, just because you're old doesn't mean it's uh, doesn't mean you're not vintage. Um, but just just send the Marders. Why are we going around the houses? I mean, Schultz today um, is in. Uh, let me get this right. Lithuania, I think, or Latvia. Uh, and he was he was asked um, in a press conference about about arms supplies, and, he, and he's still coming out with the, all the lines about yeah, Germany supplying um, more than anyone else, he's leading from the front, offering uh, uh, humanitarian aid and lethal aid, and so on and so forth. And it just doesn't just doesn't match the reality, really. Again, I I, I hesitate to, to criticise too um, loudly because every little does help. But you know, it, it would be a lot easier if you just sent these martyrs to, to Ukraine. I mean, why haven't to go via via Greece? So they then send the BNP ones in. It's just it's just extraordinary, and I, I don't know why Schultz is not under more pressure, um, or, or why he's able to withstand this. Why he's able to do do this this pretty convoluted deal? Why the the pressure is not there yet for him to say, okay, let, well, let's just send them direct and let's let's do some more as well. Um, there's a discussion point at the moment about Spain sending tanks to Ukraine. Sp- Spain sending um, German-built Leopard tanks to Ukraine, um, and that the, the decision uh, again. I'm not entirely sure why, but but Germany get a veto. I think it's on on the the end user agreement about what what happens to the to the kit you've been you're you are buying. So Germany can have a um, can have a veto on whether or not the, those tanks that Spain bought are able to go to Ukraine. That decision is yet to be taken. It will be very interesting to see. Uh, which way that goes, um, and also interesting to see if at the NATO summit in Madrid at the end of June, 28th to the 30th of June, um, how much pressure Germany comes under there. But this is uh, back to the start. This is this is the the latest in the in the whole weapons to Ukraine thing, and and Germany's se- seeming reluctance. You know, I'm trying to give them every every bit of leeway here, but I'm really really struggling here. But um, yeah, I, I just I just don't understand the thinking why it has to be overly overly complicated and you end up getting some fairly old BMP1 sent up to Ukraine. Thanks, Dom. And um, Francis, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this as well, about Germany supplying weapons at a rather slow rate to Ukraine. It has been remarkable, hasn't it, that Germany, which was often seen, I think, really as... as well, as the leader of, of Europe, not only economically, but in this weird sort of moral sense, you know, since Germany has uh, come to terms with its with its past um, in the 20th century um, and and has been so vocally critical of of any movements um, that might be deemed um, have any any relationship with intolerance or, um, or or sort of far right politics, populism, those kind of things. Um, that that it just seems remarkable that that, that what was once this uh, this arbiter of, of 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 sort of what was right and wrong on the international stage, or at least in the European stage, has has, has now been reduced to its current position where almost everybody is is critical critical of it not only are um the ukrainians obviously uh, critical of, of of not receiving the weapons they feel that they've been promised not only is, is britain and america sort of been very frustrated by by the delay of the german response um but also of course those who who, who 
are more sympathetic perhaps to um, uh, to, to being more cautious on, on, on escalating the war, including Emmanuel Macron in France, I would, I would say as part of that, are also frustrated because they feel that Germany are sort of playing both sides in the sense that they're talking tough, which doesn't necessarily, from their perspective, um, reduce um, the likelihood of escalation. But then they're actually doing very little. So I think they're in the worst of both worlds and need to make a very clear decision about which, what is their direction of travel. Um, I read an interesting piece in analysis, I think it was in The New Statesman, that was making the observation that, that you know, Germany is, is learning the wrong lessons from its history in the sense that it seems to be sort of so terrified of, of humiliating Russia um, um, as in the same way that perhaps Versailles humiliated Germany after the First World War, that, that, that they don't want to be seen as doing too much that might, that might risk um, the conflict being going on longer or potentially even, you know, from their perspective, dragging in um, uh, NATO or, 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 or other um, other European powers, um, but I mean, it, it's. I think that, that 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 there are a lot of flaws with that, and I think we've 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 spoken about about that in the past. So I don't again, I won't go into it too much today. Um, but it is it is a very very challenging and I think situation when you have a country that that was seen as this. This, this 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 leader on on issues of morality and economics um, going down this path. I think you could could really argue that, that that Germany is now the sick man of Europe once again, as it was in the 1990s, but perhaps just not in the same way that 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 it was then, which was broadly economic. It's now sort of a, a, an epidemic of 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 um, a sort of a malaise of uncertainty and a lack of confidence um, that, that's, that's really sad to see because I think it was a, a golden opportunity really um, of the post-Merkel era of you know, a new, whatever one thought of Merkel, whenever you have a change of leadership, it's an opportunity to, to reset and to do things differently. And instead it just seems that German has, Germany has been even, even weaker um, than it arguably was, certainly with the perspective of, of Russia than, than in the Merkel era. And so, so many of the policies that Germany was seeing as a, as a huge champion of, whether it be economic or um, immigrational in, late, in nature, are now, I think, being fundamentally challenged and undermined by this. And, uh, and I think that, that, that there will have to be very, very serious questions asked in the long term. And of course, there will be a reckoning. The German population are not happy about this. Um, if you actually look at the polling. And, and so as a consequence, I think it will be very interesting um, and, and watch this space. Thank you, Francis. Can I just put this out there? This this happened this morning. The former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, has lashed out at those who, quote, hate Russia, calling them degenerates and vowing to work to make them disappear. He uses other language I won't repeat here. Just a final quote here. They want death for us, Russia. And while I'm alive, I will do everything to make them disappear. He didn't provide any further details. So Mr. Medvedev, if you remember, was president between 2008 and 2012, currently the deputy head of the Security Council. What do we make of this outburst, Dom and Francis? Yeah, I saw that. I, I, I don't make too much of it, to be perfectly honest. It, it's, I mean, it's a bit like a, it's a bit of a late night tweet that, that didn't happen late at night. It was, yeah, it was an, it's un, ungainly language, uncivilized, undiplomatic language. I mean, you know, quite used to that on Twitter. But as you say, he's a, he's a former president, former prime minister, very close to, uh, to Putin. Did the sort of hokey-cokey in-out president? Prime Minister between the two of them for a few years, and still very prominent in the National Security Council. So, yeah, I mean, not not good. Plays to the audience. Um, I don't know how much how much of that sort of venom would already be priced into that that cohort. Um, so, yeah, not not helpful at all. You'd like to think there'd be, um, well, 
if we if we're eventually going to come through this led by diplomacy, then you need to start putting the markers in the sand down, and that clearly is not not a marker of of um, sort of trying to edge towards peace. So I think we just note it and move on. Really, I mean, it, it does it smacks a little bit of desperation. I mean, if your war was going brilliantly, I don't think you'd need to put out a tweet like that. If you uh, just wanted to g up, g up the fighters and the home crowd and what have you, um, I don't think you'd necessarily need to use some of that language. Um, yeah, not not particularly helpful. I don't think it's particularly worrying and concerning. He's not known for these kind of outbursts, really. I, I don't think. So it was it is a, a, a break from from the kind of thing he comes out with. But then you know I think they're under quite a bit of bit of pressure, and there might also be other all sorts of domestic games to play here that that there might be might be jockeying for position in any in any post war slash post Putin fallout. See who who's where and who's who's sort of nailed the colours to the mask. So so I'm not I'm not a great sort of Kremlinologist. I wouldn't be able to read too much in, into that. But um, I think that there may well be more um, certainly more at play domestically here than necessarily for the international audience. I think that's that's definitely true and I agree with what what Don was saying. Just picking up on one 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 comment there about um sort of Russia and, and future negotiations with with the West. I, I, there's a curious coincidence that took place last week that that may have caught the eye of um of some listeners which was the the man believed to be behind the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko um was found dead supposedly of covid but he was quite a young man and you know one always asks questions when sort of people of significance uh, with russia sort of suddenly die in unforeseen circumstances and it got me thinking about what if it were some sort of inside job and of course we don't know if that's the case but i'm just sort of you know being hypothetical here if it was what does it reveal and i think it would reveal that Russia knows that if there is some sort of future negotiation, that it will be in a weak, weakened position um, with the West and may want to try and eliminate anyone that could cause them issues in those negotiations. Now, of course, the Litvinenko case is still considerably uh, high profile in the UK. And one can imagine that in the kind of deals that take place um, in, 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 in committee meetings that saying we want this man to be come and face trial in the UK, say, um, and, and that this would be, you know, obviously something that would have consequences for how Russia is perceived in the UK and in the West. And who knows what this man might, if they had were forced to agree with that, might say. And so, um, you know, one, one, I thought, as I say, that would be, it wouldn't surprise me if it was part of that, um, that, that, that it, you know, broader strategy, I suppose, of thinking about negotiations, that that might have been something that would be a reason why that might take place. And so let's, if we take him out of it and just say that I could, would not be surprised that Russia is thinking in that mentality, even if it's not true in the case of this man, he has died of, 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 of COVID. Um, I, I think we sh- thinking about how Russia will be preparing the groundwork is significant. Um, and, and as I say, putting pressure on in terms of food and energy is, is, is just part of that. But I don't think we can exclude the sort of dark arts of spying and, and assassinations either. Thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom. Yes, it's an interesting one, how much indeed to read into it. The reason I asked is because it seemed as if it was potentially demonstrative of the frustration felt at the top of the Russian leadership. But thank you very much for your thoughts. 
Francis, I know you had some thoughts about uh, the current morale of the Ukrainian army. Well, yes, if we if we talk about the way in which uh, uh, morale is the wrong word in the context of, of Europe, but let's say attention um, and perhaps um, sort of level of commitment of, of, among some European powers for, for the long attritional war that the Ukrainian conflict is now evolving into. I just wanted to contrast that with some of the interesting sort of statistics that have, have come out um, of Ukraine. I don't believe they're actually from the Ukrainian government because um, obviously one would, in a, in a wartime context, have to treat them with scepticism. I think this is this, the, these are sort of um, being done more subtly than that. Um, but essentially, even in the darkest days of the war, the Ukrainian belief in victory doesn't seem to have ever lowered below 70%. And as a consequence of that, they are obviously not prepared to trade territory for peace. And it appears that President Zelensky has been quite consistent on this, on, on this matter of territory. What he really wants, and it doesn't necessarily mean that he would need to be part of NATO, but what he really wants is a proper security guarantees um, that mean that, 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 that Russia couldn't, in a few years' time, try again um, and learn the lessons of, of this sort of disaster so far, um, that, then that would mean, you know, proper commitments similar to NATO in the sense that if Russia were to invade, that, that certain powers in Europe would, would militarily intervene and thus the hope being that this would de- deter Russia from, from ever um, uh, intervening in, in Ukrainian affairs and, 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 and to invade ever, um, ever again. Um, and so, and because and, obviously, otherwise, this war will never will never end. I mean, arguably, that this will become so attritional, um, and and then you know there might be ceasefires, and then it will reignite again when Russia feels that it's in a position to do so. So that is, I think, the 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 the, the Ukrainian position. And I say, I just wanted to to comment on that. That it is remarkable um, that that you can maintain that level of of. Um, Belief in leaders, particularly when things are going very difficult, uh, um, and 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 I don't think even Churchill was was as popular in in the Second World War. He certainly wasn't at certain dark days in in the conflict, as as it seems that President Zelensky has has maintained. And I say, I just think we should focus and, and or at least magnify for a moment that contrast, because if we were in a situation where the Ukrainian res- resolve was weakening, and and you know Russia feels that it's in a position to to, to, to make gains and, and, and Europe wants to see peace, then that would be very significant. But the fact is that they are currently at the moment still the scale of, of commitment to victory in Ukraine is such that they are not going to give up. And, and, and that needs to be factored into all decision making long term, um, whether that be in Brussels, in Berlin, in Paris, in London, because it totally changes um, what ne- the West's and NATO strategy needs to be going forward, um, and 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 I think it, it just speaks to again the the ability of President Zelensky to to unify his people, um, even in the most direst of, circ- of circumstances. It is, is is truly extraordinary, and I think, as I say, one could say almost unprecedented, certainly in the modern era. Just quickly on that, Dom, I know you had um, some thoughts about Zelensky's visit to the troops in the Donbass as well. Well, I just wanted to to pick up on. On a note that was put out by Mick Ryan, the former Australian Major General, uh, really worth worth following on Twitter. So he, he's, he's called Mick Ryan, but he tweets under at War in the Future, and he was just saying that um, so Zelensky's visit on ooh, Sunday or Monday, Sunday, Sunday, I think, to the Donbass. He went to Lysychansk um, and another a couple of other uh, bases in the area. So not not into Severodonetsk itself, but very very close, certainly under. Under threat of Russian uh, Russian fire, artillery fire certainly, um, 
and, and this was a, an unannounced visit to, to the Ford bases. Uh, and Mick Ryan was just making the point in a, in a, in a Twitter thread. He was saying that this um, sort of leadership tour out to the front does a, does a number of things. Um, and he, and he, he played it really well. Zelensky played it really well. And Mick Ryan was saying, first of all, it gives the leader, gives the president, gives the, the minister, whoever's gone to, gone to do it, in this case the president, ground truth of what's happening. It's, it's one thing to read these reports and to have your, your advisors um, show you on maps and, and photographs and all the rest of it of what's happening. But, you know, there's nothing quite like going there yourself and, and physically seeing it and hearing it from the people who are experiencing that every day. The second thing is uh, it shows complete trust in your army. I mean, Zelensky put his, he puts his life in, his, in their hands every day anyway. Um, but to, to go that far right up to the, to the front is, is extraordinary. Um, and, it, and it shows the complete faith he has in his, in his military, which does wonders to cement that sort of civil military interface so for, the, for the president to say, I, 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 I'm totally entrusting you with, my, with the travel, with my protection, with my operational security, so you're not, you're not telling anyone that we're coming and allowing Russia to maybe pick up the radio signals and you know, target me, et cetera, et cetera. Complete faith in, in his military. Thirdly, it inspires um, in particular sort of the junior soldiers who are, who are necessarily you know, quite removed from, from, the, from the president, junior soldiers, junior officers. So to actually see, see the guy there um, is something is – un, is unusual and uh, to show that he's taking the same risks as them and he's actually come down to visit them. And he was, he was handing out medals and, and, and getting briefs and what have you. So, you know, that, that, does, that does wonders. And Mick Ryan makes the point that purpose is the most important thing a leader can provide. I mean, that, that purpose, so to speak to the people and to show them that, that, that he's the embodiment of the fight that they are and the risks that they are taking every day. Um, away from their families, away from their loved ones. I mean, it's just um, that, that is what a leader can, can do. Um, and it also shows us, the international audience, that, that he's no bunker leader, that he's just happy to, 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 to keep comparatively safe back in, in Kiev and, and sort of stay uh, in a relatively safe area. It shows that he's prepared to take risks, that he's out there, that he lives the, the ideals that he, um, that he speaks of every day. And finally, Mick Ryan just makes the point, I mean, how different from Putin? You cannot imagine Putin doing anything like this, going going forward, or, or um, I mean, good luck with that, Putin going out and saying, well, you know, how's, how's the how's the you know, mail fit, boots getting through, et cetera, et cetera, all the other way around, boots fit, mail getting through. Um, that's why I was so bad. So you know, it was just it's a very different style of leadership. Now you, know, you kind of think that Zelensky is that kind of character anyway, and Putin is that kind of character, but it does really show the difference in the leaders that. Um, uh, you know, Zelensky going forward just highlights that this, this, these ridiculous scenes we've, we've seen of Putin in, with the long tables that you know, Marx remarked about earlier. Um, and so all things considered, I just thought it was worth, worth drawing attention. It was a couple of days ago. Or I think it was yesterday that Mick Ryan put that tweet, tweet thread, Twitter thread out. But it was about the visit on Sunday of, of Zelensky to go forward. And we see this throughout history. See, see leaders going forward to inspire the troops and, and show that you're, you're taking the same risks as them and you understand what you are, what you are asking them to do. And it was always... Sort of said, I think the 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 kind of unwritten deal, the contract between the between the military and civilian leadership, um, is that you know it's almost like the civilian leadership is saying, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna unnecessarily risk your life in peacetime with exercises, and and I'm gonna put systems in place to, to look after you and then I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do something in wartime that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself now of course you don't expect a, a president to go and man the gun and pick up a rifle and, and, and all the rest of it so so the way that that could most 
ordinarily be expressed is by these these visits to the front line. So so that's all embodied in in in, the, in this visit. Just for a few hours, go forward, hand out the medals, take some photographs, um, speak to the speak to the men and women on the front line. Um, I think I think it's a very interesting very interesting visit, uh, and I thought Mick Ryan's observations were were spot on. Thanks very much, Tom. Um, so this is a question from Agne. I do apologise, Agne, if I pronounce your name incorrectly. She has a question about the Bayraktar drone in the context of Lithuania raising 5 million euros in uh, just three or four days to purchase a Bayraktar drone from Turkey. She wants to know what a Bayraktar is and how exactly would it be used in Ukraine? Yeah, so a Bayraktar is, uh, it falls into that delightfully named category of drones, medium altitude, long endurance, male Drone. So, so as the name suggests, medium altitude. So we're talking fifteen thousand feet ish, bit bit higher, bit lower, but but thereabouts. And long endurance. So, so a number of hours, depending what you put on it, um, how many weapons, and depending how far you want it to go. But you know, it can survive. Uh, this this category of drones can survive for about a day, basically in in the air. Often much shorter because you'll you'll be sticking loads of weapons on them but you know quite some hours and you're not just looking over the hill these will go they travel at about 100 knots uh it's about 100 you know 100 110 miles an hour as we understand it um and so they can go a long way they can go a long way and they will have cameras on them the barractor has cameras so it can can see what's going on and transmit those images in real time back to a control station uh and it's got a weapon it's got a whole load of weapons that can anti-tank missiles usually so it can do something about it when it uh, when it sees something of interest so these are um they are un- they are they have no uh, humans in the aircraft the humans are back in what's called a ground control station which is basically a a box, an ISO container with three people, a, a mission commander, a pilot and a, and a weapons operator. And they'll be, and these things can go off and, and look for a target. Um, and because it's real time, they can, they could decide if they see sort of five tanks underneath them and one air defense unit, they can decide actually it's the air defense unit that's the most important target here. And they can fire a missile to, uh, to destroy that. So drones, uh, and Barak has only been around for eight years ish, not, not long, not a decade yet, really came to light in the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. That was the first time we'd really seen them, uh, knit together that, um, the didn't together the drone being able to destroy things on the ground with other military activity. So, and the reason I hesitate there is because we used drones for for years in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, but they were usually sort of seen as a weapon system in, just on their own. So, to actually knit them together with other other formations, other other um, other activities on the ground, we hadn't really seen that before twenty twenty, and we're certainly seeing it now but to have this ability to to not only look over the hill but look over a lot of hills a long way away in real time to be able to select the most appropriate target and to use your scarce um, munitions is a um, is a very powerful weapon system indeed so we think um, we think Ukraine have got a low dozens. We're not entirely sure how many they've got, but you know, if they've got thirty, they're probably doing well. They've they've lost a, a slack handful, four or five ish that we think have been shot down. Um, but they are very very potent, and you can't really hear them because they're not they're not very loud. They're they're, they're, they're they are small. Um, so Barakta is only about the size of a of a family car, you know, a state car, not not that big. And so above uh, above a few hundred feet on a on a moderately uh, windy day, you're just not going to hear them uh, or, or see them, and they, because of the camera 
uh, is, so, is so good these days, the optics on the camera, they can stand off a long way. So they can actually be looking at something some, some kilometres away from where they are um, and, and attack it. So uh, people in, in armoured vehicles and armoured vehicles, they're not, you know, some, some are quite noisy, but mostly they're, they're not too bad. But, you know, you're not with all the engines running and the, and the fans going and the radios, you're just not going to hear these things, probably not going to be able to see them either. So they are a real potent addition to the, uh, to the battlefield. Now, their downside is that they don't have any self-defense weapons. So they, they, um, if you have a decent air defense network, you'll be able, you should be able to see them and, and shoot them down. But because they're so cheap, you, you can actually have a lot of them and you don't know where they're going to be. They're quite easy to launch from this ground control station, as I, as I suggested. So you just don't know where, where they are. And to, and to have your air defense sort of focusing on that, it, it, it just gives them another, another headache to think about. Um, and again, if these if these things are are fairly cheap in the in the low um, the low hundreds of thousands of the entire system, then you know they they're, they're going to be pound for pound for the for the weapon systems they are destroying. They're great they're great value. So you, know, you can afford a lot of these things. Um, if you can't afford the big high end air defence stuff, buy buy some of these some of these drones and and weapons and and knit the system together. And they are a very potent uh, addition to your armoury. I hope that helps. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Tom. And Agne, let us know if that answers your question. Thank you for your question. And just to repeat, uh, if you do have questions for us, please do let us know. Um, do either email or, or, or DM us. So, Francis, can I come to you for your final thoughts, please? Yes. Well, I think it's in the context of the conversations that we've been having today, I just I think I've been very struck by how many commentators have taken the... I mean, setbacks might even be the wrong word. Some of the, 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 the challenges the Ukrainian forces are currently facing in the Donbass and some of the sort of advances that the Russians have made and seem to think this is somehow a, a turning point in the war, that the Russians are on the ascendancy and that this is, they're, they're sort of grinding down the Ukrainian resistance, etc. And I, I just think that's, that's a very ahistorical view, frankly, of how wars um, um, tend to pan out. I mean, ultimately, what really matters in this conflict are not short-term setbacks, are not occasionally conceding territory, but it's these me- measures of morale, it's these measures of, 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 of losses and attrition rates and all of these things that we've talked about in the podcast so many times. And as I say, that, that statistic that I cited earlier of just the, the, the extent of the morale that is still very much present among the Ukrainian forces and the fact that they're still receiving significant munitions from many European powers and, of course, from America, means that, I, that, I, that, that this is still, they are still in, the, I think, the strongest position. This is their country. This is their land. They know it better. The, 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 the Russians have lost and continue to lose generals. They've lost thousands and thousands of men. Bear in mind that many of them are conscripts. Many of them feel that they've been misled as to the nature of the war. Many of them are poorly trained. Um, on so many metrics, the Russians are still at a disadvantage here. And I just think that um, I would I, I'd urge listeners to be sceptical of some of the commentary that appears to be coming out, um, particularly, I'm afraid to say, in, in media in certain other um, countries that are a little bit more sceptical of, of support um, for Ukraine, particularly in Germany and France, that seem to think now that this plays into a narrative that it's dangerous to support Ukraine too strongly because some sort of turning point has been reached. I think that we should challenge that. And I think, as I say, the evidence would suggest the contrary. So I just think something that's food for thought as we as we go through this, 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 this critical second phase in the war in the Donbass. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom Nichols, would you like the final thoughts? 
Thank you. It's, it's just to echo Francis's point there, really. We are, I think, reaching the start of the next phase. I'm not going to say the start of the final phase, because I think there's a lot more to go. But uh, it is noticeable how some areas are seeming to express war weariness. And, you know, I can assure you, I, I don't think they would mind me speaking for them on this point. I can assure you the, the people who are most war weary here are the Ukrainians. OK, so so we need to get over ourselves a little bit. And we, we promised on this pod right at the start that, that we would be we would stick with it and we would bring you the news and we would bring you the, the comment and and the analysis. Uh, and we're not going anywhere. And, and that is that is true now. And those people, politicians, look at you, Germany, who are kind of saying, oh, can we, oh, are we still doing this thing? Can we just get on with the negotiations and all move on? No, no, no. I think I think you're wrong on that. I think history will judge you to be wrong. Um, who knows? But we are not going anywhere. You know, Telegraph, we're going to stay here. We're going to be keeping looking at this. We're going to be putting our best people on it, best people on the ground, uh, getting you the getting you the stories. And um, and yeah, it's important that we stick with it and we stick with those people who, as I say, are um, are the most weary weary uh, of the lot. You know, we're not going anywhere. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.